the Lord be with you. I wouldn't be the first preacher to make note of a seasonal trend brought to us by the good folks who compile the schedule of readings that we call the Revised Common Lectionary. Because quite often, they've included texts about money and spending and giving in the roster of readings for the fall season. Why is that? Why are they being so helpful, you might ask? What better time of year for them to make such an effort when so many churches are beginning to stress about making their budget before the year ends? Not this church, of course. It's a way to give the preacher a little bit of leverage, uh, the strategic application of a little bit of scripture, some spiritual pressure to nudge the congregation and loose up all those strings. And then afterwards, of course, the congregation can't accuse the preacher of any sort of shenanigans. It's all right there in the RCL. Don't look at me. And for this week, if you want to pick a closing line for a sermon, give to God what is God's. Long, weighty pause Cue the ushers in full garb and an extra special number on the organ with all the stops pulled out, and then maybe someone does a solo on an electric guitar. And then be sure to swap out the regular offering plates for 18-piece buckets from KFC, because this is going to be a big day for those ushers and the teller, and boy, the treasurer is going to be so happy. The thing is, though, like so much of what Jesus says, the quick and the slick and the really useful reading of the text usually completely misses the point. If our takeaway from this text is its potential utility as a fundraising tool, we have robbed ourselves of a deep reflection. Because this is another glimpse of Jesus' profound view of the world. How does Jesus expect us to navigate this complicated universe, the sort of place that we live? What is the best posture as citizens of this land and inhabitants of this planet? How do we live together as people who practice a life of faith and community, worshiping and serving our Creator? Over time, of course, there have been so many theologies and doctrines attempting an answer, working with a tangled mess of what it means to be Christian citizens, but also people who form hopeful communities of work and worship. Today's text plunges us right in the middle of all of it, and then it just leaves us there, marinating in the juices. As the tension of the final chapters of Matthew's gospel builds, Jesus at last found himself at the temple in Jerusalem. And there, the first thing he did was set to work kicking over the tables and thrashing the temple marketplace in his famous cleansing of the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. After his scouring of the temple, Jesus left Jerusalem 
And he spent the night on the slopes of the Mount of Olives in Bethany. The next morning he got up, cursed a fig tree, of course, and then he went back to the temple to teach as though he hadn't been there just the day before making a holy ruckus. But Jesus came to teach, and so he taught. And what follows is a set of uh, intense lessons and parables, and the Messiah who kicked over all those tables is no less gentle with the religious leaders. And these stories and teachings include harsh words for them. He accuses the local religious authorities of all kinds of hypocrisy. And these men are embarrassed, and they are angry, and they set to work to cancel Jesus. Goading him into saying something terrible, something dangerous. But these men are also cowards. So they send their students in to match wits with the famous Jesus of Nazareth. You can picture these young, devoted, religious idealists. These are the wannabes. They have high hopes of religious purity and a life devoted to holiness, and they're nervous and they're scared, and they're wearing suits that don't quite fit. They're a few sizes too big, and they're awkward and clumsy. But they're young men hoping to prove themselves as truly devoted and capable. The text also tells us that the Herodians were there. Well, who are the Herodians? We'll recognize them because they are wearing really nice suits, really good clothes. They are members of a whole society that is formed around the administration of the temple. And Herodians had their motivations. These are opportunists, climbing the ladder, working the angles. They are collaborators to the core. Like pawns in a dangerous game, the apprentices move in to strike up a conversation with Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Now, if you don't mind, we were wondering if you had some hot takes to share here. Uh, Maybe you could talk about some of the most fiercely contested ground in the entire world on which you stand. Off the record, of course. We're all friends here, aren't we? Maybe you have something to say about religious practices or government policies. In this case, should we faithful worshipers pay a temple tax to the Roman emperor? This is a controversy which, by the way, quite often ended with riots. And that would end with soldiers clubbing the citizens of Jerusalem in the streets. What makes this trap so tricksy? If Jesus were appear to be siding with Caesar, advocating temple taxation in an occupied land, the regular local citizens would despise him. Not to mention all of the devout religious and ethnic groups who would call him a collaborator and a sellout. But if, on the other hand, he told the good folks at temple that they didn't owe Caesar a penny, But this was their land, and this was the holy ground of their ancestors. Caesar? Just another corrupt dictator in a long line of scoundrels and monsters. If Jesus took this path, there'd be good reason to expect soldiers with arrest warrants and charges of sedition and conspiracy to come and find him. The devout religious folks were listening for any sign 
of spiritual compromise. Our faithfulness to God's law is what makes us a people. And failure to be true to this path and this tradition, to be true worshipers, that'll be the end of us. And of course, Herod, Syncophants have their own point of view. Just look at this amazing temple. Herod's temple, they call it. This is what a little strategic collaboration will get you. One of the greatest and most famous places of worship in the whole world. Herod's temple. Collaboration and compromise built this. Just give Caesar his kickbacks and occasionally crush an uprising for him, and you're golden. We're golden. The interests of religious purity on one hand, and the shared benefits of working with the empire's machine on the other. So what will it be? Jesus the Roman collaborator? Jesus the religious zealot? Are you a true believer? Are you a political sellout? Are you a holy man? Are you a revolutionary? Boy, did Jesus deliver the goods. First of all, he lashes out and calls them hypocrites to their faces. And then turning the tables on such a deliciously flawless reply. You think there's an obvious trap here? Always the brilliant performer, Jesus searches his pockets. As it happens, I don't seem to have any money on me. Could one of you show me the coin that you are carrying in your pocket? It's pure wit. Genius. Now, there is some debate about which coin it was that those young Pharisees would have handed to Jesus. I happen to have one of them on me right now. It's right here. (laughs) Joke about inflation, huh? What does it say on it? Oh, just wait. I don't want to go back here. What does it say right on the front of it? Whose head is this and whose title? Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Hey, boys. Don't hate the player, hate the game, right? And from the looks of things, you folks carrying all those coins with pictures of Caesar in your pocket are playing the game. Why are you asking me any of this? A few insights distilled into such few sentences. Give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And that ends the whole interrogation. The apprentices slink away as the question hangs in the air. They don't want to ask him any more questions, but the question hangs in the air still. What exactly belongs to Caesar? Is it the stones which form this temple? The land under it? The people on it? The extracted resources and capital that this land delivers? What belongs to Caesar. What a passage to read in a building built and maintained with tax-exempt donations. Because, of course, the question of what is Caesar's is still with us. 
The phrase, render unto Caesar, has been used by so many propagandists as an explanation and a rationale for why we should support the imperial forces, whatever they may be. Mix in some love for the motherland, our brothers and sisters in arms, fight for king and country, manifest destiny, shed some blood for our freedoms, the sun never sets on our empire. We Canadian church folk find ourselves in a complicated set of relationships and interests with our own history. Surely you want a good economy with reasonable priced consumer goods. Surely you don't want to know what that t-shirt that you're wearing or those sneakers that you're wearing, who made them and where. Surely. We would like you to manage the unhoused in our neighborhoods without increasing our property taxes. Vote for the politician, though, who promises the strongest economy. And let's not forget that Caesar built roads and aqueducts, the fresh water in the fountains. Caesar made the trains run on time. He promises us peace, and he promises us victory. Just so happens I have another coin on me. Some of you may recognize this one. This one was pressed in celebration of the Roman sacking and demolition of Jerusalem, including the complete destruction stone by stone of Herod's temple. Judea capta, it says, Emperor Vespasian smirking with his neck wrinkles on the back. And on the other side here, the image of a weeping woman who sits under a Judean date palm. The empire never cared about you. The second question, what belongs to God? Is it the stones which form the planet under our feet, the sun and the moon and the stars above it, the people on it? What belongs to God? A lot of the scripture and the songs that we've heard today have given some answers, including Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. God's coming to sort all this out? So then, we render unto God, I guess. We find the most devoted path. We give to holy causes. We're fervent. We follow the leaders who guide us in the ways of purity. Be in the world, but not of the world. Love not the world. Didn't Paul say that? We might hold those aspirations even while calling to mind so many religious folk, hollow leaders, people who we trusted, who failed us, righteous promises turned to dust. Donations we made to good causes in Jesus' name, tainted by corruption and mismanagement. Rendering unto God what is God's has its own set of challenges. Harder still if he tells us that we are his and he asks us to give our whole lives. 
Friends, we are in a pickle. Jesus sees us wriggling, wedged and struggling in the grip of our systems and our economies and our theologies. He sees our religious aspirations and he sees our astonishing failures, the faults and the cracks in all of our institutions, overlapping with all of the compromises and hypocrisies. Jesus sees the difficulties that people like us face in a world like ours. He sees our troubled human condition with such clarity, and yet he still calls us to follow him. If our walk of faith and our life as citizens don't present us with difficult choices and hard realities, maybe we should ask ourselves why. Can our spiritual ambitions make us irrelevant delusional? Do our politics and our money make us complicit and compromised? Have we failed at these things and so many more? Sometimes, often, with regularity, still working on it? The favorite thing I read about this passage is by a biblical scholar named Anna Case Winters, and it's been in my head all week. She said, You know you have a problem if you are a disciple of Jesus and you do not have a problem. And so, friends, let us take on together these holy and unholy problems. Get up from this pew today and follow this problematic Christ. Follow Jesus once more out these doors and into this troubled world. And then wake up in the morning and give your heart to this journey. Go to bed at night assured that you are loved by the God who sees you. Even as you confess your failures and compromises and questions, even as the empires crumble to dust, all around us. Give your life to this God who loves you and this whole world. Amen.